If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is hour number three of the World According to Zig podcast for this November 26, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Doing a special hour number three, although it will not be a full hour today, uh, to mostly provide an update on last week's really important hour number three, which deals with the never-ending or my never-ending uh, crusade for truth in the so-called Penn State Jerry Sandusky Joe Paterno uh, quote-unquote scandal. My website, if you want more information, is www.framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com, the name chosen many, many years ago, which I would not use again if I had known the full story at the time. It is figurative. It's not literal. This is not based in any sort of conspiracy theory. In fact, I'm the ardent anti-conspiracy theorist. In fact, as we're doing this hour number three, the top trending item on Twitter is Greg Schiano, who is a coach, a college football coach, who appears to have been hired by the University of Tennessee as their head football coach. And the reason, at least part of the reason why he's the number one trending item on this Sunday afternoon, is that a lot of people uh, are trying to cause controversy over his hire because supposedly he was involved in the Penn State uh, scandal, and that's complete, total bullshit. Complete bullshit. His, his supposed involvement was that he allegedly was given an indication that uh, Jerry Sandusky had abused a boy at Penn State. He has vehemently denied this. There is no evidence to support it. It came about because of a leak amidst a BS settlement process where there was no vetting whatsoever, and the leaks were manufactured to destroy people at a time period when the narrative that the media had bought into back in 2011 was beginning to fall apart and they needed reinforcements and the media got and gave exactly what they wanted. And Greg Schiano was one of those people who was caught in the wake. And now, here it is all these years later, and this story, this bullcrap is still being used to try to destroy the lives of innocent people. And allegedly somewhat credible news people are expressing outrage. What they're really doing is virtue signaling, which I can't stand. They're virtue signaling about, oh, this is so horrible for Tennessee to hire one of Jerry Sandusky's enablers. Come on, can we use our fucking brains for a second? It's absurd. There's no evidence to support it. It's nonsensical. It's been discredited. And this is why Urban Meyer stood by Shiano when this first came out. And I'm sure why Tennessee has decided to hire him, assuming it doesn't get torpedoed by the virtue signalers on Twitter. But this is the way the world works now. People who have no freaking clue about anything rule the world because the Twitter mom determines everything. 
It's just flat out ridiculous. It's insane making. It's more than ridiculous. It's insane making. All right, but the reason why I wanted to do an, another uh, so-called hour updating what's been going on is I, I really urge you, if you haven't already, to check out hour number three from last week's podcast. It features an interview with a guy by the name of Tom Frederick. And the reason why I spoke to Tom Frederick, he didn't even know why I was speaking to him, is that Tom Frederick verifies finally the story that I've been trying to track down for six years now as to when, as best we can tell, this supposed Mike McQueary episode, this is the one at the center of the whole supposed scandal where the then a graduate assistant supposedly sees Jerry Sandusky molesting a boy in the shower and supposedly tells Joe Paterno about it the next day and Penn State allegedly does nothing because they're somehow covering up for a coach that's been retired for a couple of years that no one even liked. And, I mean, it just doesn't even, it doesn't even pass any remote sense of logic or any smell test. It's just absurd. It's an absurd narrative. It's on its face. I've never bought that narrative. And everything I've learned in the last six years is, has substantiated why no one should buy into that narrative. But that date, the, 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 you would think, <laughs> you would think that the date in which something happened would be a key fact, right? I mean, when you're, when you're talking about facts, the date is pretty much right up there at the top of the list. And the original date given for this, when Mike McQuarrie first testified, was March 1st of 2002. That was when the story first broke. Joe Paterno got fired. Then he died. He died thinking that this happened March 1st, 2002. Well, that turned out to be not just false, but totally false. Because emails that were then later recovered. And it's interesting to point out, these emails, the way they were recovered, the prosecution and the media made it seem nefarious. <gasps> oh, these were hidden emails. And we're now just finding out that this event happened in 2001. No, 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 that's not what happened. The, pe the person who was asked for the emails, Gary Schultz, an administrator at Penn State, was told to search in 2002. Because that's what McQuarrie was testifying to. What he got in 2002? Well, there was nothing. Because nothing happened in 2002. So when he turns over the full stash of emails, they go, oh, wow, look, we've got some documentation here that this thing, it appears as if it happened in February of 2001. Which right off the bat should be a problem. Main witness gets the date the month, the year wrong, thinks it happens after 9-11 when it actually happens before 9-11. This is not consistent with a guy seeing a local legend sexually assaulting a boy where he did absolutely nothing, didn't even get the boy's name, didn't even make himself known enough to where the boy and Jerry Sandusky knew he was there, doesn't go to the police. The story doesn't make any damn sense. And so that was always very problematic to me. But one of the biggest mistakes I've made in this entire saga is that I have actually been far, far too trusting of what I refer to as the other side. The other side being the media, the prosecution, the accusers, Mike McQueary. I've given them far too much benefit of the doubt because I, you know, I, just, I don't like to presume that people are evil or that they're capable of doing evil, horrible things and they blatantly lie or make stuff up. I just That's just not my my knee-jerk reaction. And so when the February 9th, 2001 date was then testified to at Jerry Sandusky's trial, I accepted it uh, because, one, we know that Mike McCurry met with Joe Paterno on the morning of Saturday, February 10th, and that the whole bunch of things happened because of that, because Joe Paterno did exactly what he was supposed to do, which was pass it up the food chain. And it was investigated. And so I just accepted, okay, February 9th makes sense that the, the meeting that Mike supposedly had with his dad and his friend, Dr. Dranoff, that night never made a lot of sense to me on a cold February night, late at night. But okay, you know, obviously something happened where he was weirded out. He was uncomfortable. He was upset, whatever. He doesn't go to the police. I, uh, but I'm going to accept all that. Then I interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison. And he's not accepting the February 9th date at all, but I'm still presuming Jerry's guilty, so I'm not giving what he's saying a lot of credibility, but he's positive this is not what happened. And he's positive that the night this occurred with a 
a guy by the name of or a kid by the name of Alan Myers, who was almost 14 years old at the time, who was very close to Jerry Sandusky. He was positive that this happened on a night much sooner because it was in his mind in connection to him losing out on the Virginia head coaching job and his biography called Touched, autobiography called Touched, ironically enough, which the prosecution misused as some sort of confession on his part. Uh, but his book coming out at the beginning of 2001. And I believed that Jerry believed that, but I just, he couldn't come up with any substance behind it. And I investigated the story from the standpoint of, okay, Alan Myers is the, the kid. He's victim number two, as he's referred to. The prosecution claimed that he was unknown at the trial because no one testified. He was known only to God, which makes no damn sense in a case with this much money and, and this much publicity surrounding it. This, this person that was sexually abused uh, 10, 11 years earlier is just, you know, never heard of the case and doesn't want his millions of dollars. That's, that's absurd. But, okay, fine. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm presuming Alan Myers is the kid. And Jerry had always said that Alan Myers had off on that day of February 9th. And I checked his high school, West Branch High School, and Alan Myers had school that day. So I was kind of caught in between. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Does <laughs> this mean that the date's wrong or that maybe Alan isn't the kid? Or is Jerry just misremembering? Or maybe there's multiple episodes. Well, Jerry insists they're not multiple episodes. There was only one situation. He ever showered at night with a, a kid at Penn State. Uh, and uh, this was it. That's one of the many misconceptions of this whole story is that somehow this was happening all the time. It was not. This was. There's so many freak occurrences in this whole perfect storm, and this is one of them. So anyway, we're going along, and I'm just accepting, okay, it must have been February 9th, and Jerry just can't remember. And as I long, after a long, long investigation, I've now determined that Jerry Sandusky is not only innocent, he's obviously innocent. It's not close. I know that sounds insane to people who haven't followed it, but it's not close, and everyone close to the case knows this. It's not close. That's what the most bizarre part of this is. This is not a case of reasonable doubt. I wouldn't be doing this if this was reasonable doubt. This is obvious innocence. And all the ingredients were there for a witch hunt railroad job, specifically the firing of Joe Paterno, the media firestorm, everything that happened because of that, all the money that Penn State paid out over $100 million. It's all there in spades. But then recently, we started to learn a couple of things about February 9th, 2001, that made me go, well, wait a minute. Do we really know that that was the day? Yeah, we know Mike met with Joe Paterno on the 10th, but do we really know that the 9th is the date? And it started with the fact that there was a Bare Naked Ladies concert that night. For, for some reason last week I said it was a Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was Bare Naked Ladies. I know that makes a big difference. But, but there, was a, there was a concert that night. Very close to where the shower the shower uh, building is, the locker rooms at that time. And that didn't prove anything to me. But it was an interesting data point that, okay, well, it's weird that Mike didn't remember that. And it's also weird that Mike thought that it was spring break. Because that's an event that would be completely inconsistent with spring break. Because his first recollection is that this is a break, right? The, the, there's, the campus is quiet. There's no one around. It's spring break. March 1st, 2002 was supposed to be the Friday of spring break starting, which was used as an implication that Jerry must be guilty because he knew he would get privacy. As opposed to why the, why the hell doesn't he just take the kid home? <laughs> there's not one allegation in this entire case of Jerry ever showering with a boy at his home. Why is that? <laughs> Because he knew that would be inappropriate. That would be, but he thought of these showers as open, effectively public, large areas where anyone could come in at any time, and there was nothing in his mind to worry about because he'd grown up in a rec home where this was normal behavior. Anyway, it's also from a very different generation. We have to remember also that 2001 is before the Catholic Church scandal has hit. So this is a very different world we're living in, even though it wasn't that long ago. So I digress. So I started to think, okay, did we really, do we really know it's February 9th? So I start to question it. Some people end up uh, giving me some good information. Uh, a supporter named Andy uh, gets me an article from 2001, February 2001, in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which helps jog Jerry's memory about a book signing that he did in State College on December 30th of 2000. That uh, then gets me to email Jerry. I said, Jerry, is there any way to, that you know this jogs your memory? He says, yes. I think that the shower scene happened just before that. I said, can we prove it? He said, well, I did have a conversation with 
my college roommate, Tom Frederick, on my way home from the first book signing from Washington, PA, back to State College, and maybe he would remember. So I called Tom Frederick. Tom has no idea why I'm calling. He has no idea the significance of this. You can hear the interview in hour number three of last week's podcast. I think he's as con- as sincere and incredible as possible. He-, he actually thought it was Washington, D.C. It was actually Washington, PA, which is where Jerry grew up, and that's where the first book signing was on December 29th of 2000, which is now the date that I believe is, in fact, the date, the real date of the Mike McQuery episode, which is a huge deal because it not just shows that they got the date wrong twice, but now there's a problem. Now there's a massive gap, a gap of five or six weeks from the time that this happens to the time that Mike McQuarrie decides to go see Joe Paterno. Now there's, I want to get to the significance of that and, and some other elements as, as to, you know, whether or not that really happened or what would have also had to have occurred with regard to the meeting between Mike's dad and and this Dr. Tranoff I've already referenced. I want to get to that in a moment. But since I did that podcast, and this is the way this works, because the media won't touch these stories because they already have their fairy tale narrative. They already have their Santa Claus. They're they're a colony of five-year-olds. They're never going to do anything to discredit Santa Claus. He's too big to fail. So what happens is I put this information out either on a podcast or a tweet or a Facebook post or whatever, and then there's other people that will help, and they'll look into it. And interestingly, we found out a lot of stuff after last week's podcast, all of which further substantiates the December 29, 2000 date. The first thing we found out is, guess what? It wasn't just that there was a concert that night on campus. There was a home hockey game. The home hockey game is way more significant than the concert, and here's why. Number one, where the hockey games were played at that time was literally in the same building. For all intents and purposes, it's the same building as this shower scene is taking place. Not only that, the hockey game started late. I have no idea why. The hockey game started at 9.15. The best guess is that Mike starts to go over to the showers at around 9 o'clock from his home after supposedly watching a football movie. I'll get to that shortly. That makes it utterly impossible for February 9th to be the date because you would have remembered that. (laughs) There's no possible way for you not to remember that there's a home hockey game starting at exactly the time you decide to go over to the Lash building. It's impossible. You would remember that. And there's all sorts of other things that you would remember from that week, including, as I mentioned during the last podcast, that two days before, February 7th, was National Signing Day for college football players. And as a graduate assistant, recruiting is your life. You would have marked time by that date, not to mention you would also be very busy still tracking down stragglers for potential scholarships and recruits and what have you on February 8th or 9th. So none of this is remotely consistent with February 9th. In fact, I think we have as good as you can possibly do. I think we have proven February 9th is not the day that this happened. McQuarrie has no credibility because he already got the date, the month, and the year wrong. Sandusky has always been right that those first two dates were a myth. There was no possible way for them to be right. Also, all the things I've outlined about February 9th make it impossible for Mike to have not remembered that and to miss recall this as spring break so all that makes february 9th exceedingly dubious if not utterly impossible okay what about december 29th well one of the things that we learned and i should have remembered this but i didn't because there's you know i can only remember so much about this case it's an incredibly complicated case and i remember more about it than most almost anybody else probably anybody else but i had forgotten that Alan Myers, when he testified, one of the things that he stipulated to was, get this, he had traveled with Jerry Sandusky to the University of Virginia for one of his job interviews there for the head coaching job. So now that puts Alan Myers in Jerry Sandusky's car on a long trip at this exact same time period. But was it the same trip? Well, at first, when that was brought to my attention, I thought, maybe that's the same trip. Because if you listen to my interview with Tom Frederick, it's clear that he was under the impression, because you got to remember, this is all done by phone calls. He's, he's in Philadelphia, I believe. 
and he's got a connection to the Virginia job and to Jerry, so he's very interested. But he has no idea. People aren't identifying where they are on a cell phone. This is a cell phone world. So I had the impression, I think Tom had the impression last week, that what had occurred here was that Jerry had gone from Charlottesville, Virginia, after his second or last Virginia interview. He had then gone from there to Washington, PA, and then driven back to State College, where the shower episode occurred, and then on that way from Washington to State College was the phone call between Jerry at a, at a gas station with Tom Frederick. I kind of thought that was the narrative. Then, after the podcast, Dottie Sandusky recalled some more information, and she said, wait a minute, I remember that Jerry took Alan Myers to Virginia before Christmas because there were multiple interviews with the University of Virginia because he's going for the head coaching job. This is a huge deal. Apparently, there were at least three interviews, one of which Alan goes to the University of Virginia before Christmas. Interestingly, I now believe that there's a very good chance that Jerry was not alone on that trip with Alan Myers. I think there's an exceedingly good chance from from my interaction with Jerry since last week's podcast that the other person in the car was Jim Caldwell, the current head football coach at the De- for the Detroit Lions, who was supposed to be Jerry's assistant head football coach at the University of Virginia. So, so here we have Jerry Sandusky, Alan Myers, and Jim Caldwell driving down from State College to Charlottesville, Virginia, to interview for the head coaching job before Christmas, which makes sense that Dottie, being the, the house mom, would remember that because it's disrupting her Christmas preparations, right? So then they come back to State College, and here's what Tom and I didn't fully understand. That last interview, which would have been December 28th of 2000, that's in State College, It's not in Charlottesville. Terry Holland, the athletic director for Virginia and maybe an administrator, had come up to State College to interview with Jerry, and they thought to get him to sign the contract. That was December 28th of 2000. That's been published in the papers, okay, that that happened. It's at that meeting that there's a phone call that disrupts the meeting, which Jerry now strongly believes was the head football coach of the New York Jets, Al Groh, alerting Virginia that he wants the job. He's a Virginia alum, has deep ties to the program, and he wants out of the Jets because they've just lost their last three playoff, their last three regular season games. They missed the playoffs by a game, and he wants out, and he doesn't know when the Virginia job is going to open up again, and he wants the safety of his of being the coach at, at his, his alma mater. Well, that's the 28th. By the 29th, Tom Frederick is getting word from his friends at Virginia that something went wrong with the interview. Jerry didn't sign the contract. Maybe he gave him too hard a time about opening up a new charity in Charlottesville or, or bringing the second mile charity from State College to Charlottesville. It kind of turned Virginia off. I now believe that all day in the 29th, Virginia is working on getting Al Groh signed. So December 29th is like the worst day in the history of anybody's life that doesn't end in their, their murder. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. So on this day, Jerry doesn't have any clue. He's losing out on the Virginia job. He's driving from State College, where the Virginia job interview occurred on the 28th, from State College to Washington, PA, for a book signing. He takes Alan Myers with him. It's obviously a day off for Alan because it's winter break. It's Christmas break. So he drives from Washington, does the book signing, drives back from Washington the same day, which Dottie says he did did that kind of thing all the time. He drives from Washington back to State College. On the way back, he stops for gas. He calls his friend Tom Frederick to update him on the Virginia situation. Frederick remembers it because Jerry couldn't get the gas to work properly. That night, they go to State College. They take a shower. They're horsing around, according to numerous testimonies by Alan Myers, before he flips and becomes a victim, referring to some sort of game they played called Polish soccer. Mike McQuarrie sees them. For two or three seconds after hearing slapping sounds, misperceives what happens, leaves without saying a word. The next day, Jerry finds out he doesn't get the Virginia job. He's at a state college book signing, which is referenced in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. It all matches up. That's the, that's a narrative that completely matches up. So I go back to Jerry, and Jerry, Jerry one of the many, pro, many things that got Jerry in trouble here is that Jerry 
does not make definitive statements unless he's 100% sure. Like, for instance, when he was asked for the first time in his life by Bob Costas, are you sexually attracted to young boys? And he goes, um, sexually attracted to young boys? Hmm, let me think about that because I've never been asked that before. <laughs> and, and, and unlike a real pedophile, I've never thought about that before because as a pedophile <laughs> in your 60s, that's all you've ever thought about your whole adult life is I'm a sexually attracted to young boys and why is that? But that's not the way Jerry Sandusky responded and that's not how he responds in general. So I emailed Jerry. I said, Jerry, here's the scenario I now believe is the truth. Interview with Virginia on the 28th in State College. You go to Washington with Alan Myers on the 29th. You come back. The shower's on the 29th. The 30th is the second book signing in State College. That's when you find out about the Virginia job. Is this make sense to you? He responds, yep, that's it. I think you nailed it. Totally makes sense. So after six years, I finally convinced Jerry Sandusky. <laughs> what the hell date? The most important thing that ever happened in his life in the history of Penn State University actually occurred. He's not the only one convinced. Uh, I've been in direct contact with Gary Schultz, the guy whose emails facilitated the first uh, date change, and it is my belief uh, that Gary Schultz is convinced that the December 29th makes a heck of a lot more sense than February 9th. Indirectly, I believe the former president of Penn State, Graham Spanier, has also expressed that he believes that the December 29th date, based upon what we now know, makes a lot more sense than the February 9th date, 2001. Tim Curley, the third administrator that uh, pled guilty to a misdemeanor, will make no comment because his lawyer won't let him, which is incredibly disappointing because his lawyer, Caroline Roberto, at the very beginning of this thing, had the biggest balls of anybody, and now she's turned out to be a completely ballless bitch. But whatever. Uh, And that's not even how I really feel about her. But I digress. Anyway, so the point is that all the people at the epicenter of this thing say, yep, that makes a lot more sense than February 9th. There's one last piece of this puzzle, though, and that is this meeting. Because the narrative is that Mike says, immediately after seeing this in the shower, or actually hearing this in the shower, he meets with his dad and this Dr. Dranoff, for whom his dad works, Dr. John Dranoff from State College, Pennsylvania. And he tells them about what happened, Dranoff says he asked him three times whether he saw, ever saw sex, and Mike did not say that he ever saw sex, that he, he said nothing about ever having seen sex, and that based upon that, they decide not to go to the police. They decide to instead go to Joe Paterno. And everyone has presumed that because of the nature of that conversation, which I believe that conversation happened, although maybe I shouldn't, but I do. I, I, I believe that conversation had to have occurred. Everyone presumed that since... Mike saw Joe Paterno on the 10th, then that means that conversation had to happen on the night of the 9th. Well, the 9th was a Friday night. That's when Mike said it happened. That makes some sense. You know, it, it indicates urgency. It indicates something dramatic occurred. I no longer believe that that's the case. And last week I was debating, okay, there's two scenarios here. Did Mike see his dad and Tranop somehow the weekend of the 29th of December, 2000? And no one just remembers the date, and everyone just bought in that first it was March 2002, then they bought in it was February 9th of 2001. They really have no independent recollection of that. That's, I think, possible. It's more possible now than I, than I thought it was last week for reasons I'll get to momentarily. My theory last week was that Mike did not tell Dranoff and his dad on the 29th of December 2000 that he waited. He's never thought anything of it. And he didn't realize that he had an incentive to say anything about it until February 8th of 2001 when he finds out that the Kenny Jackson wide receiver coaching job is now open. That's a job he desperately wants. That's a job he would not get, which disproves the whole cover-up theory. But it's a job he would get three years later. Exact same job when it reopens under suspicious circumstances. There are people who believe that Mike sabotaged the guy who had that job. And that's how he ended up getting it three years later. But Mike finds out on February 8th the Kenny Jackson job is open, and then suddenly he finds a reason to go see Joe Paterno on the morning of the 10th. That's an awfully strange coincidence, is it not? I mean, because you want FaceTime with the great Joe Paterno in the context of being a Boy Scout doing your good duty, and oh, by the way, there's a job opening. And oh, by the way, it's important to point out, I forgot to mention this. I forgot to mention last week that you know Mike's testimony is that when he calls Joe Paterno on that Saturday morning, the 10th of February, 
Joe basically says, don't come over. I don't have a job for you. If this is about a job, don't bother. Now, I was in the Paterno family kitchen, the very place where this meeting between Mike and Joe allegedly took place in uh, 2012. This was Labor Day weekend of 2012. And uh, a whole bunch of people were there. Sue Paterno was there. Sue Paterno was actually in the kitchen. Wasn't even fully paying, I didn't think, pay attention to the conversation. I referenced... Mike saying this, and I didn't even think it was significant at all because at that point I'm thinking Jerry's guilty and I'm just trying to figure out what the hell happened with this Mike McQuarrie thing and did Joe Paterno really cover it up? Did Penn State really cover it up? Which I didn't ever believe because it made no damn sense and there was no evidence for it. But I happened to reference this testimony by Mike. And Sue Paterno turns around in the kitchen and screams at me. This is the first time I've ever met Sue Paterno. Joe Paterno's wife of over 50 years, a woman who, by all accounts, has a steel trap mind and memory, and she screams, that never happened! Now, you can imagine. (laughs) I'm like, whoa. (laughs) All right. Uh, Note to self. First of all, don't piss off Sue Paterno. Second of all, um, that's got to be noteworthy for some reason. Well, now I understand why it's noteworthy. Because Mike made that up. Why did Mike make that up? Well, maybe it was his subconscious making that up because that was the real reason why he went over to go see Joe Paterno. That's the kind of thing that the subconscious might do, is that Mike creates this story to discredit what the real truth is. This was so not about a job that Joe actually told me, if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. Well, Sue Paterno was there that day. And I know enough about old couples to know that if the woman says that the man never did or said something and she was there, it never happened. And now what I know about Mike McQuarrie, I totally buy he would make that up, either consciously or subconsciously. By the way, before I forget, there's one other element that I I did forget last week about the issue of the memory and Mike's misstating of the date. Not only does the fact that he says that it's spring break consistent with it being winter break in reality i mean because i'm you know I'm, I'm buying that mike must have thought this was a break he just mistook spring break 10 years later for what was really winter break there's another fact that backs that up that year in 2000 penn state did not go to a bowl game not only did they not go to a bowl game their season actually ended before thanksgiving so not only is there nothing going on in december in the, in the Penn State locker room. There's nothing going on. But even more importantly than that, because the season has ended a month and a half sooner than it was supposed to, I mean, you're supposed to end your season January 1st when you're a big-time college football program, not mid-late November. So because there's an extra month plus, there's basically five-plus weeks, that, I think, explains even further why Mike is thinking it's March at first. Because there's, in his brain, there's a gap between the end of the season and when this happened. Well, that's because there was no bowl game that year. So normally, in a normal year, December 29th would be a very busy time. You wouldn't even think about that as being possible. Because you would either have just gone to a bowl game, or you're going to a bowl game. or that, That's the prime time for the end of the season. But that year, Penn State went to no bowl game which I think further substantiates this problem with Mike's memory and thinking that it was originally March and spring break when it was actually December and winter break. Okay, so back to the Dranoff meeting. So last week I thought he just waited and then decided on February 8th, you know what, I need an excuse to go see Joe Paterno. I'm going to talk to my dad and uh, see whether or not this is a good idea. His dad calls in Dranoff. And they tell him to go see Joe Paterno, which is exactly what Mike wanted. I'm even thinking maybe maybe Mike even wanted to practice what he was going to tell Joe Paterno. That would make sense, right? It's happened five or six weeks ago. He's never told this story before. He's going to Joe Paterno. He wants to get it right. So it doesn't make him look like a jackass. That made a lot, not total, but made a lot of sense to me. I'm now now leaning towards the other direction. I'm now leaning that he actually did talk to Dranoff and his dad sometime that weekend when it first happened, whether it was the night of the 29th, I I am dubious of, because it could have easily been the next night and no one would have known the difference. I mean, 10 years later, you would have no clue. You would just, you know, Mike came to us and told us about this, 
and he seemed upset. That's all you would remember. So it could have been the 29th, could have been the 30th. You know, there's nothing going on because Penn State's not going to a bowl game. It's in between Christmas and New Year's. So that is all plausible to me. But I'm not just making this up now. We found out something else this week after last week's podcast. And that is that there are two references in the many testimonies of Dr. Dranoff that raise real questions about how much time there was between this episode and Dranoff being told about it, and when Dranoff has a conversation, along with Michael Query's dad, has a conversation with Gary Schultz, the Penn State administrator, who was effectively the head of the campus police, but he, did, he was a vice president, he did all sorts of things. He was in charge of all sorts of things at Penn State. And so they have a meeting. Not about this. Dranoff and McQuarrie have a meeting with Gary Schultz. Not about this. It's about a negotiation with Penn State and, and their business, okay? After the meeting, Dranoff and John McQuarrie, specifically Dranoff, come up to Gary Schultz, and they ask about the status of the investigation into what Mike said he saw. And Gary remembers this vividly, partially because Dranoff had indicated that Mike was very upset. Now, what's really important and really fascinating about this is is that Gary is convinced that this meeting occurred only a couple of days after he himself had spoken to Mike McQuarrie. And he knows that he spoke to Mike McQuarrie about this episode on February 20th or 21st. That's generally been accepted by everybody. 20th or 21st of 2001 which would have been you know, 10, 11 days after he went to go see Joe Paterno and supposedly 11 or 12 days after this happened. That's what everyone is presuming as they're going through the motions. So now we're at February 23rd, 4th, maybe 5th. I think uh, Gary may have told me, I'm not remembering 100%, something, he's pieced it together the best that he could, that like 20, the February 25th or 6th is like the latest in his mind, that this meeting could have transpired. Which makes, in his mind, makes sense, right? Because he's just had a meeting with Mike McQuarrie. In his mind, this is a very recent event. Then McQuarrie's dad and a very close friend of the McQuarrie's, Dr. Dranoff, has a, a business meeting with him, and they mention it after the business meeting. All that makes sense in the timeline. Except Gary didn't know until this week that there are two references in Dranoff's testimony, one via a question by the prosecution and one via Dranoff's own answer in the trial involving Graham Spanier, the former president of Penn State, which indicate that there was a one to three month gap between the time that Mike comes to them and their meeting with Gary Schultz. The question from the prosecutor, which I found to be very fishy because it felt like they were trying to plant information into Dranoff's head, references the meeting occurring with Schultz one or two months later. Dranoff, on his own, in his testimony in the Spanish trial, refers to that time period as three months later. Okay, Now let's just take everybody at their word. At the recollection, Schultz says late February is when that meeting occurs. He can't prove it, but he's, it's more than just a recollection. He's put, tried to pe- put the pieces together, both based upon what was said at the meeting and what would have made sense at that time, plus his schedule as he knew it at that moment. So he's thinking it's late. Everything he says points to late February. If you buy the one to three months, let's split the difference. Let's split the difference. What's the difference between one and three months? Two months. What's late February minus two months? I'll let you do the math. If you take late February, you subtract two months from it, you get late December, 2000. What date does Jerry Sandusky believe this happened? December 29, 2000. That's the date I believe. That's the date I believe that Jerry, that uh, Gary Schultz and Graham Spanier now believe is the date that this happened. And that would indicate a different narrative. That would indicate that what really transpired here is 
Mike sees this event. He tells Dranoff and his dad at some point during that weekend and then doesn't, doesn't go to Joe Paterno. Doesn't tell anybody. Doesn't go to police. He sits on this for five or six weeks until the Jackson job opens up. And that is part of what I think facilitates him finally going into action. I have another theory about what also might have facilitated him going into action. And that is, because I asked Gary, I said, Gary, how long in advance of your meeting with Dranoff and McQuarrie's dad would that meeting have been scheduled? He said about two weeks. I said, well, think about it. Let's pretend you're right about when that meeting occurred. February 23rd, 24th, 25th, somewhere in there. Subtract two weeks, 14 days, from that particular date. If you subtract two weeks, which would be the normal scheduling for a business meeting, now you're at the week of February 9th. You're in the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth range. This opens up a very real possibility that Mike finds out through, a, and it was very normal, Dranoff was a very close friend, finds out through a normal conversation with his dad and or Dranoff that they're meeting with Gary Schultz. Well, now Mike has even more reason he's got to report it because if... If they mentioned to Schultz, right, which they normally would, that Mike had said this, and maybe Mike had given them the impression that he had reported this, and they ref- they reference it to Schultz, Schultz is going to be going, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't know of any Mike Re- McQuarrie report. So now McQuarrie has to come forward, because if he doesn't, he looks like a complete jackass. Again, this is not proof, but if you look at the timeline, it matches perfectly. Now, the only part of this that we're not 100% sure of is what's the date of that Schultz meeting? And unfortunately, like everything else in this case, it's exceedingly hard to prove beyond any reason, any shred of doubt, which is basically the the, uh, standard that my side is held to. So I don't know if we're ever going to know for sure. The free report, interestingly, references that meeting as May. And Gary thinks there's no way that's May. And I don't think there's any way that's May because here's why. If they had somehow nailed down the exact date of that meeting, the date would have been in the free report. But it doesn't have a date. It just says May. What I think the free report is doing is they're just simply going, well, we know this happened in February because we want it to happen in February. We're going to add three months, which is what Dranoff said, to February. You add three months from February. Where do you go? You got May. That's what I think is happening. They didn't even speak to Gary Schultz. So I don't, I don't trust the free report at all. Now, is it possible that Gary's memory is off? It is possible. But he is as sure about this as he could be, and it fits every, everything in the timeline. I mean, it is impossible. It is, it is impossible to reconcile Dranoff's testimony that there were three months in between Mike coming to him and him having that meeting with, with Gary Schultz based upon what both say was the substance of that meeting because we already know that three within three months the investigation has been fully done so it doesn't make any sense for that to be three months so anyway what's the bottom line here the bottom line is that the entire mike mcquery story has been classically reversed engineered it is a reversed it is an obviously reversed engineered story and what i mean by that is they had a conclusion they wanted to come to, and now they're trying to dra- jam square pegs into round holes, which is why they keep getting it wrong. I'll give you another example. Mike's original testimony was that this happened that night. He was watching a football movie. That's what he said, a football movie. And then he decided to go over to the showers. Well, that was as specific as he got back when it was March 1st, 2002. But when they changed the date, now the prosecution felt like they needed something a little more solid because we're, we're insecure about the date now. We're vulnerable in the date. We need something more solid. So what did they do? They go to February 9th and they go through the TV schedule. And sure enough, in the TV schedule, there's one football movie, supposed football movie. It's Rudy. And now all of a sudden, Mike says, I saw Rudy, which is different than I saw a football movie. 
Because I'm not even sure you would refer to Rudy as a football movie. It's not. There's like two football plays in the movie. I know because I was actually at the shooting of the movie. It happened at halftime of the 1994 Boston College Notre Dame game. I was there. I saw it. There's no football in that movie. There's literally two plays, like a kickoff and Rudy making a tackle where he was offsides, by the way. But anyway, the point here is, the point is, it's not really a football movie, number one. Number two, the movie doesn't end until 1030. This event occurs around 9 o'clock, 9.15, by everybody else's account. Not to mention, Mike says, I got inspired and decided to go over to the shower. There's nothing inspiring about Rudy until at least 10.15, at, at best. So none of that makes any sense. So what really happened? Let me tell you what really happened. Mike didn't see a football movie. In his mind, he was watching football. But because his date was March 1st, both he and the prosecution go, well, wait a minute, you couldn't have been watching football. There's no football in March. So you must have been watching a movie, right, Mike? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I was watching a football movie. Because he just always oh, remembering is I was watching football. And then once they go to February 9th, now they need a specific movie, they pick Rudy because that's all they've got. Even though the timing and the subject matter doesn't make any goddamn sense. So what really happened? It's December 29th. That's a huge bowl day. ESPN is airing college football all day long. That evening, there's a peach bowl game between LSU and Georgia Tech. Pretty good game. It was an upset. LSU wins. Scores late to win by 14. That game ends at 8.39 p.m. If Mike watches that game, decides, you know what, there's one more game on the Holiday Bowl, but I don't need to watch the beginning of it. I'm going to go get some stuff done. He gets out of his house. He goes over to the Lash Building showers. He's there at 9, 9.15. That's exactly the time period when this allegedly happened. That's a story that makes some flipping damn sense. None of this other bull crap. You know, it, you know, and I realize this is a highly controversial way of ending this, but I don't give a crap. When I, when I reference reverse engineering... My first experience with a reverse engineering a story is, ironically enough, since we're talking, you know, post-Thanksgiving, is the Christmas story. The, the biblical story of Christmas is the most classically reverse-engineered story of all time. And what I mean by that is, there's two Gospels that mention Jesus' birth. The whole, you know, Bethlehem story. Every kid loves it. My daughter loves it. I read her the books about it all the time. But the story is clearly reversed engineered because they wanted an outcome, which was to show Jesus as God and to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. So they had to figure out a way to get there. And the two Gospels that even mention it, interestingly, the other two Gospels don't mention it at all, which I think would have made every... I think if this was true, it would have made every biography of Jesus possible if you were really born under the circumstances that the two Gospels mention. But the reality is that if you take those two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, if you, if you take those two Gospels, I think it's Matthew and Luke, if you, if you take those two Gospels, there's no year that works for both stories. None. Zero. It's not possible. There's no possible, because they give you enough information to be able to pin down a time range, and there's no year that is consistent. Not to mention there's other contradictions in the story. And the story doesn't make any sense because Mary and Joseph had no damn need to go to Bethlehem for a census. They weren't even Roman soldiers. And why, why are you taking your pregnant wife on a donkey trip to Bethlehem? None, none, of, it, none of it makes any sense because it's a myth that's created in order to substantiate an outcome. And that's what the Mike McQuarrie story is. It's a myth. They, they, everyone had an outcome they wanted to get to. And that's why the story doesn't make any sense. That's why they can't get the right date. And that's why the narrative here is totally wrong in a way that the media will never investigate, never accept, or question Mike about, or question Dr. Dranoff about. And it's emblematic of this whole damn case. And it's never going to be fixed. It's never going to be fixed. 
It was proven to me this week in spades. I referenced this in hour number one of this week's podcast with the fact that even Al Franken is getting railroaded now with very similar evidence discrediting his accusers as Jerry Sandusky has. And he's a not even accused of actual sexual abuse, certainly not with kids. He's a liberal Democratic senator, possible presidential candidate. He's got all sorts of protection, and even he's getting railroaded. There's no way the media, after having been so invested in this story, is ever going to change it. And I'm exceedingly pessimistic about my efforts that I thought were damn close to busting this open in the mainstream news media. I'm now... um, no longer believing that that's likely to happen. I haven't given up on it, but um, I'm now below 50% and might even be significantly below 50%. But the truth still matters. You just got the truth. Please make sure you share it via social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. Uh, Word of mouth also helps because this is important stuff. It's an incredibly important story. Biggest travesty not involving a direct murder that I've ever heard of in my entire life. And it's the most obvious false media narrative that has ever been told. And it should be reversed, but it won't. So all I ask is you do your part by sharing this. Also go to framingpaterno.com if you want more information on the case. You can be there for weeks because there's just ridiculous amounts of information. Also check out Mark Pendergrass' brand new book, The Most Hated Man in America, The Rusted Judgment, uh, with regard to Jerry Sandusky. I got my copy this week. There's a chapter on me uh, in there, so make sure you check that out as well. Also, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.